this evening. So Titus chapter 2. This evening we have been looking for the last several weeks at the subject of offense and answering some questions about what is the need for the church today to be on offense. Maybe uh, how do we get on offense? And then last time we were together we were talking about how do we know which team we are on. So we think about the church world today and there are a lot of things the church does um, that are not always out of offense but more out of defense. And a lot of times it can be easy in our spiritual life or even easy in the life of the church that we get in a defensive posture and all we're trying to do is just survive. But my um, argument, my emphasis, my exhortation has been that as a church, one of the things that is paramount for us is that we do not have a defensive mindset, but we are constantly on the offense looking for ways that we can advance the kingdom of God and looking for ways that we can move forward in our own personal life and in our Christian life and in the life of this church and thinking about what offense looks like and many times the posture between defense and and offense is different. And so you will come into some situations and you will see people sometimes with their head down and their language, their body language, they almost scream, I'm just trying to survive. And there's some people that will come in and they will look all excited, they look confident, they look prepared, they look ready, and they're saying, hey, I am here and I am here to conquer and I am here um, because I have an agenda. And so what does it look like for the church to be living on offense versus us being on defense. That's what we've been talking about over the course of the last several weeks. And really... Uh, What I want to uh, maybe look at this evening is God's plan for the church. And more importantly, God's offensive plan for the church. So all throughout Scripture, you'll see where God, whether He doesn't say it explicitly, He says it implicitly, that His desire for the church to be on offense. He gave us His Word as a source of authority and a source of truth. He gave us His Son uh, as a means of salvation, as an example for us on how to live. He gives us His Holy Spirit for the... uh, for a source of power and guidance and unction. And so God is giving us all the tools that He says that we need in order to live an offensive posture, an offensive life. But if we're thinking about God having a plan, how do we get on that plan? Think about whether sports analogies that we've talked about for the last several weeks, most on the higher levels, I don't think they actually do it on the peewee leagues, but you know, most of the higher levels, the coaches have a plan. They have a game plan. They'll get with their team and they say, we've got to do this to be successful. We've got to do this uh, to, to win. We've got to do this in the game. And they're trying to coach their teams. And, they have ex- and they've examined and they've analyzed the strengths and the weaknesses of both teams. And they lay out a game plan to say, this is what is needed to ensure victory. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just want to say, God, show me the plan. God, show me what you want me to do. So, Titus chapter 2, Paul lays out a plan for us. He lays out, I'm going to give you a four-step plan that God is giving us for His creation. So, a four-step plan on how do we get on offense, stay on offense, and live on offense in a regular, everyday life. So, Paul is writing to Titus. He's writing to one of his younger disciples, and he's encouraging him. He's giving him instruction and he's showing him this is how you to live this Christian life. And in Titus chapter 2 and in verse 11, he kind of, he's been teaching verses 1 through 10 about the doctor and the men and the women and teaching younger younger men and younger women. But then he gets down to this picture. To me, this is so powerful.
powerful in my own personal life because I come to this and I read this and I say, man, this is what my marching orders are. And, and by extension, I believe these are the marching orders for the church today. So in verse 11, he begins to lay out a four-step plan that God has for his creation. So we're going to walk through these four steps together. The first step is saving. Notice in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first step in God's plan for creation is salvation, or it's the saving of people. There's a lot of discussion right now in the Christian world today on the subject of the elect. And sometimes you'll hear uh, different conversations had on the elect versus the non-elect. And there's a lot of different people, well-respected people that are on both sides of the debate. And the debate goes something like this, that there are a certain number of people that God has foreordained and forechosen to be saved and a certain people that have not been chosen or uh, elected, if you will, and they will not be saved. And then there's another side of the debate that says, no, anyone who calls them the Lord will be saved. And so one of the questions that was presented to me when you all were considering calling me as the pastor was, where are you at on that discussion? And I told you that there is the picture of election that in God's foreknowledge and in God's knowledge, past, present, and future, He knows who will be saved, He knows who will not be saved, and it is God who draws us to Himself. It's the Holy Spirit that does the drawing. Salvation is not based upon my merit. Salvation is not based upon my works. Salvation is not based upon anything in me, but what God is doing with me. But at the same time, even though I know that God is sovereign, we still understand that man is responsible. That there is still a decision that man has to make to choose to repent, confess of his sin, and seek salvation from God. One of the verses that I use to think about that is right here in verse 11 when he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You can get over Ephesians chapter 1 and they will talk about the elect and God, and, and God saving the elect. You can get to Romans chapter 9 and it talks about the elect or the non-elect but there are many times that we need to ask ourselves, so if God's plan for His church and for creation is for people to be saved, then who is that plan for? And I would submit to you that I'm still learning and I'm still growing but His plan is for all of His creation to be saved. Now He knows there will be some that will not. He knows there will be some that will reject. He knows that there will be some that will rebel to the very bitter end. But I don't believe today that there's a single person that God created that He doesn't desire to see come to Him. Let me give you some more examples. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's reminding us this is why Christ came. He came to save sinners. He didn't say the sinners that would be the elect. He didn't say the sinners that would choose. He said Christ came to save sinners. Another passage. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you get here into verse 11, and Paul uses this language about the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people, I submit to you that he is saying that God's plan, God's purpose for the church is to tell everybody that their greatest need is to be saved. It's not to be Democrat or Republican. It's not to be male or female. It's not to be rich or poor. It's not to be educated or uneducated. It's not, it's not to be at this church versus another church. The greatest need that creation have, has, the greatest need that any person has that is on the earth today is whether they are saved or not. And so God's game plan for the church is for a salvation or a saving step. He says people, their first need is to be saved. In fact, you go back to the original language. And when he says salvation for all people, that all, their original language is pos. And pos means everything. Encompasses all. It's one of those things, it's not just a select, it's not just of one kind, it's not just of one characteristic. He is saying salvation for all people. And sometimes we maybe don't say it with our mouths, we say it with our actions. That we think that some people are worth saving and some people aren't worth saving. Or some people are valuable to the church and other people aren't valuable to the church. Or if I could just get that person to the church, think of the money that person would give to the church. But then the other person, why waste my time? They have nothing to offer. And we need, I think we need to remind ourselves often that salvation, the saving of lost people, is the first step that God has for His creation. The first step that we have in coming into the kingdom of God is salvation. Without salvation, there is no unity. Without salvation, there is no unction. Without salvation, there is no spiritual basis to live a faithful life. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the first step in God's plan, God's game plan for His church being on offense in the world today is salvation. Saving. It's decided that the church's chief mission, the chief goal is not to build. It is not to gather for fellowship. Our chief goal is to see people come to the kingdom of God. Our first goal is not to make money, to retire, to have a nice house, to pay our taxes, to be good to our neighbors, to be friendly to those in the church, to come and to serve, to come and attend. While all those things are good and they have their place, our chief mission as Christians and as the church is to know that the greatest need that this world has is salvation. That's the greatest need this church has. Now we talk about a lot about how it is that we reach a community. And they're talking about doing visitation. We're talking about writing cards and doing outreach. We're talking about uh, what, what can we do outside of these walls as far as a sign. Or, or you know, we, we think about how can we attract more people in the church. And, we, and there's all this conversation about how it is that we, we, we reach a community. The first step we have to understand is their greatest need is salvation. Their first greatest need is not whether they like us. Their first greatest need is not even whether they attend. 
the greatest need that this world has is are they saved or are they lost? And so Paul wants to remind Titus that God's game plan is the salvation and the saving of a lost world. That is why he gave us his word. That is why he sent his son. That is why he gave us his Holy Spirit. Not so that we could feel good or have wonderful services so that we might be able to see a lost world come to him. We need to remind ourselves that there is no kingdom of God without souls. And the chief mission of the kingdom of God is to save people. I grew up in an era and an age where competition mattered. Winning mattered. And it seems now, more so today, they're like, well, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. Everybody's a winner. And that's not life. Life does not hand out blue ribbons to every single person. And nobody, not everybody gets a trophy in life. Uh, your utility bills don't care, don't care whether you participated or whether you tried or whether you made an effort. Your utility companies just simply say, we want you to pay us. It doesn't matter if you meant to do it, if you tried to do it, if you thought about doing it, if you wanted to do it, if you halfway did it, they don't care. They will cancel and cut off your utilities if you don't pay them. And once upon a time, you know, there's competition, especially in my family with however many there are of us. There's a lot of competition that goes on and it's not hard for us to make everything into a competitive sport because everything matters. And we always say, you know, if you're not the winner, you're just the first loser. And there's this attitude that why should we just settle for a participation trophy? Well, we have a lot of people in the world today, especially a lot of Christians in the church today, and they're just settling for participation trophies. They're settling because they just say, well, you know what, I showed up for church, so that's all I need to do. And God is saying, no, you don't understand. My plan is not just for you to show up, but my plan is for you to be on offense. And one of the ways that we stay on offense is we understand that the reason why we're on offense is because people are dying today and going to hell. And there are people all around you that you don't know whether they are going to hell or whether you don't, you don't know if they're going to heaven. There are conversations you haven't had because it's awkward. You haven't had because you just haven't found the right words. You haven't had because every time you wanted to say something, the circumstance changed and you never felt comfortable. You've never had this conversation. And could it be because you and I are just settling for participating instead of being on offense and trying to win? So there's a second step that Paul also gives us. So he talks about the saving step, the salvation step. And then you look at verse 12. The second step is training. So once that person, once we are saved, once we see these people come to Christ, then there is the training step. Every good coach is going to say, we need to do this and we need to do this. We need to get the ball inbounds. We need to advance the ball down the field. Then we need to get the ball into this person's hand. And then we need to make the basket to score the points in order to win. There's this training. Step one, step two, step three. So Paul comes in, verse 12, and says the second step is training. Notice what he says. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He is calling the church to impart or embark upon training. Now how do we do this training? Well, a lot of times in the world today, we call this training discipleship. And we say, well, we're going to make a program out of discipleship. And discipleship is necessary. Discipleship is good, but discipleship isn't a class. Discipleship is the process by which we learn and by which which we teach others around us. 
That's the picture of discipleship. Now we may have a discipleship class, and that's good, and that has its place, but the picture is, is that every single one of us in this room are in training, and every single one of this room are training someone else. Everyone, every Christian, should have somebody that they are being trained and taught by, and then someone that they are training and teaching to come up after them. You know, some of the bigger um, construction entities, you know, they have these apprentice programs. And the whole idea is that you get into the program and there is someone with more experience. There is someone with more knowledge. There is someone that, that is above you on the ladder and they teach you. But the idea is, is that when we bring these people in as apprentice and we train them up to the next level, there's a constant ladder scheme where these people are moving up, teaching other people to come after them. That way you always have competent, qualified, able-bodied people to do the job that is required. Well, sometimes in the church world today, we have Spiritually speaking, generational gaps. We have men and women in the church today that have been here for so long and they quote the Bible front to backwards and then we have this big gap because then we have a whole other group of people that don't know anything. You tell them to turn to Philemon and they're like, well, I don't know where Philemon's at. They're, they're just, they didn't grasp the knowledge. They didn't get the understanding. Sometimes it's because they didn't get the training. You know, how did the training come about? Well, he tells us, in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So he's saying that in order for us to be in this process where we are being trained and by which we are training other people, it's going to require two steps. First thing we're going to have to do is renounce the flesh. <clears throat> we need to recognize that every single one of us battle with our flesh on a daily basis. I know that two-year-old can come in and you might think, oh, he's so cute, he's so nice, he's no innocent. But I tell you, that two-year-old is selfish. And he has a temper like his mama. <laughs> and he can go from zero to screaming like that. And you can talk to him, he's but you get him mad and he can go to hollering and he can go to screaming and the best word he can, the loudest word he can say is, no! He's got it down. No one had to teach him no one had to coach him. No one had to tell him how to react. It's that flesh that's within inside of him and that flesh that says, I, do, I am selfish. I want to be pleased. I want my way. I want everything the way that I want it to be. And we look at that and say, well, that's just immaturity. But what do we say when we come to adults that are just like that? The vernacular has changed. The language has changed. But we struggle that with that in our daily lives. My desktop there on my computer just has a phrase, Lord or God, give me an unoffendable heart. Because I struggle with that. Someone says something that I don't like. Someone does something that I don't like. Someone doesn't say or doesn't do something that I don't like. And next thing you know, I've battled that offended heart. You may say, well, get over yourself. Well, I know, but, but it's one of those things that we are constantly battling about what they did say or what they didn't say, why we don't think that should be it. And constantly our selfishness and constantly our personal, our personal wants are being tested. And so Paul says, how do you train yourself for godliness is you renounce the flesh. You put to death the flesh that is in you and you live this upright, godly life today. He says lives in this present age. We have people today that are in the church that says, well you know what preacher, I can't live a sanctified set apart life in the midst of the environment in which I'm in. 
It's just not possible. You don't understand the kind of environment in. You don't understand the guys that I work around. You don't understand the language that they use. You don't understand the conditions that I'm in. You don't understand the circumstances that I'm under. There is no way that I can live a godly, Christ-honoring life in my life today. What you're telling me is, is you don't believe the Bible. Because why? Well, because look at what it says there in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Where? In the present age. In other words, Paul believed and Paul expected for Timothy to be able to live Christ-like no matter where he was. He expected him to be able to live and to reflect the kingdom of God regardless of where he was at. He wasn't saying, well, I'm going to give you an out or I'm going to give you an exception or I'm going to give you a pass. He says, we are to live godly lives today. Which really confronts me because so many times I'm looking for an excuse for my disobedience or I'm looking for an excuse for my unfaithfulness or I'm looking for an excuse of why I failed and I'm looking to blame or point at someone else. But the reality is, is that so many times when it comes to my own failures, it's simply a matter of not training myself for godliness, renouncing my flesh and looking to God. So God says through the pen of Paul here in this letter, the first step of my plan for creation is salvation. The saving of the lost people. The second step is training. These people that have now been saved to embark upon a life of training themselves and of training of other people. And then there's this third step. And that is preparing. If you go on there in the passage there in verse 13, that first word here in my translation that I'm looking at says, waiting for our blessed hope. He says waiting. He understands there is going to be an interval of time between which you are saved and the Lord returns. He says waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God knows that when you get saved, it's not one of those things that immediately you're raptured home. He understands that there is this interval of time, this time that you are left here on this earth. And what does He want you to do with this time? He has given us this time to not just train, but also to prepare. Why are we preparing? Because Christ could come back at any moment. He says right there in verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Means that we understand that we are preparing because Christ could come back at any moment. I know we say that all the time, and I know we say we agree with that all the time. And if I would say, who believes that Christ could come back at any moment? Oh, yeah, we all believe that, but are we ready for that? Because you understand when he comes back, what's going to come back with him? 
Well, it tells you right there in the, in the, in the passage. It's the glory of the great God. His glory is going to come back with Him. And this glory does not put up with sin. This glory does not put up with excuses. This glory does not put up with whining or complaining. This glory is the glory of God and He comes back and He understands that you know what, when I'm coming back and I'm coming back to rapture my church, what is coming back with me is the glory, the redemption, the final redemption that is coming that He talks about in verse 14. He gave Himself for us to redeem us so this final redemption is coming and when that happens then notice the last part of verse 14 words that just stick with me who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people what kind of people a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works and we know that good works doesn't save you we know that good works are like filthy rags But we also know that He has called us to work. That's what James is about. The idea that not just we have saving faith, but we also have evident works in our lives. So who is the ones that Christ is coming back for? A people for His own possession who are zealous. So those three words stick to me because I wonder if I am zealous for the kingdom of God. You know, there was a terminology of a group of people back in the biblical times called the Zealots. And the reason why they were called the Zealots is because they were zealous for the traditions. They were zealous for the the historical teachings. They were zealous for the things of the Jewish practice. And so they were called Zealots. They were part of the group, if you remember, when Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem. And they took the vow that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They were part of this group that said, we will make sure that this... This rabble rouser, this troublemaker, this source of heresy, we will wipe him out. But they were part of the zealots because they were so zealous for their religion. They were so zealous for their teachings. They were so zealous for their beliefs. But when it says that Jesus is coming back, I am to be preparing, I am to be training, I am to be making ready because Christ is coming back. He's coming back to purify himself, a people for his own possession. Now how do you get in that category? being zealous for good works. Think about the things that matter the most to you and I. Or think about the things that we're most passionate about. Where is God on that list? The first church that I began to serve at there in Ardmore, the man that led our singing was an avid OU fan, which I don't hold that against him. Everybody has some stage of life they're working through, but he was an avid OU fan to the point that if OU played on a Saturday and they lost, his wife said that he would be physically impaired the rest of the day. And even to the point that if he showed up on Sunday morning and he was cranky or he was irritable or he was unfriendly or he was unkind, he was given a pass because OU lost the day before. And I showed up and I said, who cares who won a football game? I understand having a preference. I understand having a friendly rivalry. I understand going back and forth and jabbing each other. I, I get all that. And we, and we can talk and we can joke and we can kid. But when we gather here for the Lord's Day, 
What does it matter? The score of a football game yesterday. We are talking about souls. We are talking about kingdom issues. We are talking about eternal matters. Things that will matter in 20,000 million years. What will not matter was the score of a football game. But he was so zealous for a team that he became more he became more zealous for the team than for the things of God. And if we're not careful, we can become more zealous for things in this world and let the things of the kingdom of God or the things that matter to God begin to slide. So I'm more concerned about this priority. I'm more concerned about this opportunity. I'm more concerned about this responsibility and less prepared about God. So Paul says the third step to God's plan for creation, you have salvation, you have training. Then the third one is preparing. We should be preparing, getting ready and saying, I know that my Savior is coming back. And so when my Savior comes back, I want to be prepared. I want to be one of those that will recognize because I'm looking for Him. I'm one of those that is listening listening for the shout, listening for the trumpet, looking to the sky, and when he comes back, I don't want him to have to wonder where I'm at because it'll be so visible because of my life and because of my works and because of my witness, he will know exactly where I am. I remember Donna Williams telling me that here a couple weeks ago that one of her favorite movies was Shenandoah. And it got me thinking about the movie. Jimmy Stewart's there in Shenandoah. And if you think about towards the end of the movie, I thought I should go back and rewatch it. And, uh, you know, this rest and remember has really been messing with my daily schedule. But if I remember correctly, towards the end of the movie, remember the youngest son had gotten caught up in the Civil War. He had gotten uh, captured as one of the, the rebel fighters. And he was there at the POW camp. And at the very end of the movie, after all the loss in Jimmy Stewart's life, if I remember correctly, right at the end or towards the end, Jimmy Stewart and his family are sitting in church and they're singing and the boy comes back and I think if one of my kids are lost one of my kids are gone how will they know where to find me well they'll know how and where to find me because of the things that matter in my life and when that boy comes in he didn't go to the saloon to try to look for daddy He didn't go to the store to try to look for daddy. He didn't try to go to the field to look for daddy. He didn't even go to the house to look for daddy because he knew that it's Sunday and it's meeting time and I know where my daddy's going to be because my daddy is at church on Sunday morning. And I I think about that, the example that we give to those around us, the example that we give because what we do on Sundays tells people what we are zealous for. And I don't want to make this legalism thing and I don't want to make this one of those things that... uh, We're going to turn this into something that it shouldn't be. But brothers and sisters, the world sees the things that we are zealous for by the way that we live. I can, of course, people perceive movies differently. But when that young man walks in, I think, if I'm Jimmy Stewart, where is my boy going to find me? And this world around you is looking at you. And when this world comes looking for you, where are they going to find 
you. So there's this time of preparing that He puts on our hearts. It's a time of preparing that He gives us. He gives us this gift of time so that we might train ourselves and that we might be prepared. And then this goes to the fourth step there in verse 15. There's a fourth step that He gives us. The first one is saving. The second one is training. The third is preparing. And then the fourth is proclaiming. So what is the fourth step that God has given to the church as far as this offensive posture? It is proclaiming. Notice he says, declare. Your translation may say something different, but it follows this same idea that what is the church to do? What is Titus to do? What are we to do? We are to declare. And in order to declare, that's a statement of proclamation. It's this idea that we are to be telling people This is who we are. And this is what we are doing. We declare what we believe by what we do. So he says in verse 15, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He is telling Titus, Titus, there are a lot of things that you can shout from the rooftops. There's a lot of things that you can post on social media. There's a lot of things that you can talk about. But make sure that you are declaring the kingdom of God to those around you you. Make sure that you are making this declaration. I graduated with John Hancock and just this last week his mother passed away. Him and his wife came in from out of town where they had been stationed and uh, saw him at the funeral and this afternoon or we had a chance to have lunch with him and you know we graduated high school together and then we served overseas together and we were in the military together for a certain period of time but I don't think I've seen him for probably 10 months or t- I'm sorry 10 years I mean it's been a good 10 years since I've seen him and so you get this chance and you know when you get around the table and you're just trying to catch up here's what I've been doing and here's where I've been going and you just try to piece the, the holes back in the timeline and you'll spend a lot of time having a lot of good discussions, but you know it's always that temptation when you're talking to people to talk about everything else and not talk about the soul. And not talk about the Spirit. And not talk about the goodness of God. And so Paul says, listen church, there is no winning this game of life without proclaiming. There is no offense in the life of the church without proclaiming. A church that is not proclaiming is not a church on offense. A church that is offense is going to be a church that is proclaiming. Why? Because the proclamation is the overflow of what God is doing in our lives. If you're so excited about the fact that God saved you, and you're so filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're so growing and you're learning... How can you be quiet? You're going to have to tell somebody. You're going to have to tell something. You're going to have to get excited about, oh, we get so excited about everything else in this world, but we don't get excited about the things of God. And he says there's this proclamation. He says, declare these things. And then he goes on and says, now, exhort. Exhortation is simply a a spiritual encouragement. When people are there, exhortation says, this is what we should be doing. This is what we should not be doing. Here's how we live a faithful Christian life. There's this exhortation. You always want to be encouraging other people. You always want to be coming alongside of other people, supporting one another. Everybody needs encouragement. There's not a single nose that I'm looking at that doesn't need encouragement. Every single one of us gets discouraged. Every single one of us begins to doubt. Every single one of us becomes wayward. Every single one of us gets distracted. Every single one of us gets tired and fatigued and discouraged. Every single one of us gets in those seasons of life that we just wonder, am I even making a dent? And yet, 
He says to exhort. He also says to rebuke. Rebuke with all authority. Does that mean I come to you and I put my bony finger in your face and I start giving you the right act of what you did or didn't do? No. Rebuking is confronting sin in love. Oh, you mean we're supposed to confront sin in love? Yes. We are to confront sin in love. You mean we're just not supposed to keep quiet on sin? No. We as a church, we have the truth. We have the authority. That's why he said rebuke with all authority. He says there is a need for me to come alongside you and you to come alongside me and to say this is what you should be doing and this is what you shouldn't be doing. I would hope and I would pray that if I was given over and giving myself over to rampant, open, unconfessed sin that somebody in this fellowship would come alongside me and say, stop it. You can't be doing this. What are you doing? Where are you going? This isn't okay. This isn't okay action. Hopefully somebody would come into my life to rebuke me. But you can't say anything, preacher. You may offend him. Some people need to be offended because some people are going to spend an eternity in hell being offended. And you might as well go ahead and tell them the truth now. But how do we do it? We do it with all authority. We do it in love. So he says, declare these things, proclaim these things, exhort, encourage one another, and then rebuke. Rebuke with all authority. That doesn't mean we go out spewing hatred in this world, whether we understand that we have truth and that we need to confront sin with love. And then he finishes out there in verse 16, or verse 15, sorry, and he says, let no one disregard you. It's the idea that when it comes to the world, there is all the time that the the world just tries to take us and put us aside. Well, that's just what those Bible thumpers say. That's just what those right-ring religious people say. Well, that's just what they say down through the church. Oh, I already know what they're going to say. I already know the, the, the rhetoric in their mouths. And I want to tell you, church, that we often, so many times, we invite that disregard. We invite people to have disdain for us because we embrace hypocrisy. When we embrace hypocrisy in our daily lives, we invite disregard. How many children would look at their parents and say, I have lost respect for you and I'm not listening to you because you're telling me one thing and you're doing something different. How many times have you listened to people or maybe even you yourself have said when you're growing up that you know what, they're not supposed to do that, but daddy did it, so why can't I do it? Oh, talk about some haunting words. You're looking at these four boys and you're thinking, you know what, if they did everything that I did... God help them. And they're getting to that stage. And they're going to be at that stage. If they're going to look at me and say, well, you did it, why can't I do it? Because it wasn't right when I did it. But if I can't be honest with them and I can't own it, and I can't show them a difference that God has made into my life, rather I'm just saying one thing at church, they see one dad at church and another dad at home, then what I'm doing is I am living a hypocritical life and nobody's going to follow a hypocrite. And this church today, not, I'm not talking about First Baptist Wilson, I am talking about the church today. There is many in the church today that are living a hypocritical life and the world outside them says, I have no regard for the church because I see that they are one thing in church and they are another thing in the workplace. They are one thing in church and they are another thing at home. They are one thing in church and they are another thing in concert. They are one thing in church and they are another thing in Walmart. And so they have no regard for us. And Paul says... You're not going to win the world by acting like the world when you're around the world. 
I mean, you can act all you want in that sanctuary. You can act all Christian all you want. That is not how we win the world. The way we win the world is acting like Christ when we're in the world. And that's the struggle. That's the problem. And that's where often the game plan breaks down. So then how do we apply God's plan? This four-step plan that Paul has given us right here in Titus 2. How do, how do we apply that? Well, just four quick steps, and then we'll get to the, the goals, um, the, the paper. First is to prioritize salvation. If we're going to apply these steps that Paul has given us, then we're going to have to prioritize salvation. We're going to have to understand that the greatest need that every person has is to be saved. That is their greatest need, hands down. It's not whether they have money, whether they have food, whether they have clothing. Their greatest need is salvation. The second step is that we practice what we preach. We practice what we preach. If we want people to turn to Christ, then we need to turn to Christ. We need to be practicing what we preach. The third step is that we anticipate the day. We know that Christ is coming back. So I am being ready. And not just myself being ready, but I am making sure the people around me are ready. That they're making sure that they are prepared. That I'm making sure that they know that Christ is coming back. And yet... We live so many times in our daily lives that we say He's coming back, but we don't live like He's coming back. So then it goes to this fourth step for application. Speak more with our witness than with our words. Because talk can be cheap in this world today. Talk can be cheap. People come up and say, oh, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, and we just walk away. And they're not doing fine. Talk is cheap. Well, I'll be praying for you. Will you? I was thinking about you. Were you? Well, I meant to. Did you? I'm not trying to devalue any of those, but it's oftentimes the talk can become very cheap. And maybe as the Christian today, we need to do more speaking with our witness than with our words. Maybe they need to see a people around them that are more concerned with the game plan that God has for us than us being concerned with the game plan that we have for ourselves. So here... In this text, Paul outlines four different steps that God has given us for the church to live on offense.